Namaskaram, Michael, Ernesto. Today we're going to be talking about uh, verse 5 of uh, Ula Dunarpadu. And uh, I'm going to first read the verse and then uh, we're going to discuss it to see where, where it leads. So um, the verse says like this, the body is a form of five sheaths. Therefore, all five are included in the term body. Without a body, is there a world? Say, living the body, is there anyone who has seen the world? Right. That's what I want to say here in, in this verse. Yes. Okay. This is a continuity of what of um, what Bhagavan was talking about in the previous verse. In the previous verse, that's in verse four, he said, um, "If one self is a form, the world and God will be likewise. If one self is not a form, who can see their forms, and how? Um, can what is seen be otherwise than the eye that sees?" The real I is oneself, the infinite I. That's what he said in the fourth verse. So the implication of that is only when we experience ourselves as a form, or rather only when we mistake ourselves to be a form, are we aware of other forms. Because um, a form is anything that is in any way distinguishable from any other thing. So when there's one form, there have to be more than one form because it has to be distinguishable from something else. And um, forms are all objects, objects of perception, things seen by us. So for, for objects to exist, there must be a subject who sees them. So we as ego are a um, subject. And whenever we rise as ego, we're always aware of ourselves as a form. So when, only when we're aware of ourselves as a form are we aware of other forms. So the world and God, the world seems to be a, um, a, a, a multitude of numerous different forms. And um, God, we generally conceive God to be a form. Even if we've got an idea that God is formless, that very idea that he is formless is itself a mental form. That every idea is just a, a mental form. So um, we cannot experience God as he actually is, as a formless reality, so long as we see ourselves as a form. Only when we see our real nature, which is formless, will we see the world and God as formless. That's the idea in the previous verse. So, um, the implication there, as I say, is that when we see ourselves as a form, so what is the form we see ourselves as? That is what Bhagavan is talking about in this fifth verse. So, as Bhagavan often said, ego is nothing but the false awareness, I am this body. In this false awareness, this false awareness is a mixture of what is real and what is unreal what actually exists and what merely seems to exist. What actually exists is only the fundamental awareness I am. The, um, the body with which this I am is conflated is just an illusory appearance. It's just a form. So this, um, 
all forms ultimately are unreal. They depend upon a seer to see them. Um, and the seer is only ego, because when we experience ourselves as we actually are, as Bhagavan implied in the previous verse, when we experience ourselves as we actually are, what we actually are is the, is the limitless or infinite I. I, I here means the, um, he's using the word I in the sense of the organ of sight. He's using that as a metaphor for awareness. So what we, are, what we actually are is infinite awareness. In the view of infinite awareness, there's nothing other than infinite awareness. Only something that is finite can see something that is finite. In other words, only a form, only something that mistakes itself to be a form can see other forms. So um, ego is this conflated mixture, uh, I am this body, in which I am is real and this body is unreal. Um, so ego, as a mixture of the real and the unreal, it is unreal. But there's always an element of reality in ego that is the fundamental awareness I am. So in this fifth verse, he's talking about the form that we take ourselves to be. That form is a body. But when he says ego is the false awareness, I am this body, he is not just referring to the physical body. He's referring to the whole collection of five sheaths. That is, whenever we experience ourselves as a body, we don't just we, we never experience ourselves as a dead body, for example. So there's always life in the body, but we experience as I. So we don't experience ourselves just as the physical form, but also the life that is animating that physical form. And we also never experience ourselves as a sleeping body. We all, it's always the body, but we experience as ourselves, always seems to be awake. Even in dream, when we experience ourselves as a body, we, uh, it seems to us that that body is awake. So when the body is awake, that means the mind, intellect, and will are all functioning within it. So this, these five, the, the physical body, the life, the mind, the intellect, and the will, these are what are called the five sheaths. Um, the technical term, the technical name, five sheaths means it's called, in the Sanskrit term, is pancha kosha. Pancha means five, kosha means sheathed or covering. Um, so the technical name for each of these five sheaths is the, the, um, the physical body is called anamaya kosha. That means the sheath uh, composed of food. Um, in other words, physical matter. Um, the, the life is called pranamaya kosha. That is uh, sheath composed of life or of breath. Prana means either life or breath, depending on the context in which it's used. Um, basically, the prana refers to all the physiological functions not only breathing, but also um, um, the, the beating of the heart, the functioning of all the various organs, organs in the body, um, and the digestion and um, excretion, and all these uh, different, all the physiological functions are all collectively called prana. Um, um, so that's the second one is pranamaya kosha. 
The next one, Manomaya Koja, means the sheath composed of mind. The term mind is a, a term we need to be careful of because it, the, the exact connotation of the word mind varies according to the context. In this context, when talking about the five sheaths, mind means the grosser functions of the mind. That is, the mind is sometimes described as the um, antakarana. And the antakarana is said to compose, consist of four parts, or Bhagavan explained it's not actually four different parts, it's four different functions. So the, um, the, 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 um, the, four, um, the four functions of the antakarana is um, manam, which means the grosser functions of the mind. That means uh, perception, memory, um, thinking, feeling, emotion, all these, all these grosser functions, these are called mind, manam. Uh, 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 buddhi, buddhi is the next one, the intellect. Um, that means the, the, the discriminating, judging, reasoning, um, uh, recognizing, distinguishing function of the mind. That is called the intellect or buddhi. Um, and the, uh, then the next is chittam, which means will. And the subtlest of all of them is ahankara, ego. Of these four, three of them are koshas. One is not a kosher. That the ego is not a kosher, but the, the manam or manas is the manamaya kosha. The buddhi or intellect is the vijnanamaya kosha. Uh, that vijnana that means um, distinguishing knowledge. So the, that ability to distinguish, to recognize one thing, to, to be able to distinguish one thing from another, the ability to see clearly, to recognize, I mean, all the functions of the intellect, recognizing connections, logic, reasoning, and um, uh, intuition where intuition is correct, but intuition is not always correct. Um, I mean, intuition is a is a strange thing. Sometimes we're able to to see something without arriving at that. See it means not see it in literally, but we're able to recognize or see the truth in something without. Um, without arriving at that conclusion by reasoning. But as I say, intuitions, some intuitions are correct, some aren't correct, but that's all functions of the intellect. Um, a clear, pure intellect will see things clearly and will recognize the deeper, more subtle truths. A, a grosser intellect, a more outward-turned intellect, will maybe very brilliant in um, in external uh, activities in uh, like uh, activities such as advanced mathematics and uh, so many so many intellectual things um, which the, the outward turned intellect may be very good at but it will not be able to recognize it won't necessarily or usually when it's the mind that is very brilliant when looking outwards is not so um, smart when looking inwards. That would be uh, outward-turned intellect, like the intellect of um, 
of scientists, mathematicians, philosophers, they are not always, I mean, the majority of them are not good at recognizing, are not very, they, they, they don't have the clarity to recognize more subtle things. So there's a difference between the, 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 the intelligence or clarity of the outward turned um, intellect, which is relatively gross, and the, the inward turned intellect, which is more subtle, has to recognize more subtle things. Um, so the more we turn within by the practice of self-investigation, the more we are refining intellect, and so the more it, that is an intellect that is purified um, by turning within, will be able to see external things clearly. It won't necessarily be able to do advanced mathematics or so on, but it, would, it will be a good instrument for external things, but that is... Um, that's just incidental. The main thing is having the clarity to see the subtle things, to distinguish oneself as the seer from all things that are seen, to distinguish what is uh, permanent from what is ephemeral, and so on and so forth. So that, that, that clarity comes only by turning within. Um, but both the, the external... Um, and internal functions of the intellect. They both belong to, they both are uh, collectively known as intellect, but there is a distinction between them. Um, and then the, the, the next, um, as I say, the next uh, uh, one of the uh, four antakaranas is the, or, or four uh, functions of the antakarana is um, chittam, the will. The will is what is also called Anandamaya Kosha. Anandamaya, or, or, uh, yes, I, I explained, but Vijnanamaya Kosha, the intellect, it means the, Vijnana means the distinguishing knowledge. So the ability to see things clearly. But the will is called the Anandamaya Kosha. That literally means the sheath composed of happiness. The reason it's called the sheath composed of happiness is that our will, what, what we all desire, what we all have, what we all love, what we all have liking for is to be happy. As Bhagavan says in the first paragraph of, the, um, of Nana, um, um, Sakala Jivagalum Dukumembadindri Epodum Sukumai Iraka Virumbu Vidalam. Since all uh, sentient beings want or like to be always happy without what is called misery, Yavakum Taniditileye Paramapriyam Iripadalam. Since for everyone the greatest love is only for oneself, um, Priyataku sukhame karanamadalalam. And since happiness alone is the cause of love, because happiness is the cause of love, the, the will is called the Anandamaya Kosha. Because all our, all our, whatever we desire, whatever we have liking for, we like it because we believe it, is a, it can give us happiness. And what we dislike, we dislike it because we feel we believe it is detrimental to our happiness. So um, all 
but the will is is all about seeking happiness. That is all. Uh, the will consists of vasanas, and vasanas are inclinations to seek happiness. The majority of the vasanas that constitute the will are what are called vishaya vasanas. Vishaya means anything other than ourselves. So the inclination to seek happiness in things other than ourselves are called vishaya vasanas. The inclination to find happiness in our own being is called satvasana. So because all inclinations, they're inclinations towards happiness. We're all seeking happiness. That is the, what the, the, the greatest sinner and the greatest saint and everyone in between has in common is we are all seeking happiness. The difference between the sinner and the saint is the, the sinner is looking for happiness in external things. The true saint is looking for happiness only within. Um, so it's a matter of uh, discrimination. But all, all, all likes, dislikes, desires, um, uh, hopes, fears, and so on, the driving force behind them is our liking to be happy because that is our very nature. Our very nature is infinite happiness, so we are all seeking to be happy. Um, there is another explanation that is more usually given for why the Anandamaya Kosha is uh, called Anandamaya Kosha. That is the, the, the explanation that is usually given is that um, the, when all the other koshas cease to exist in sleep, the, the only kosha that remains is the anandamaya kosha. And because sleep is a state of happiness, that, uh, that, so the, um, the, 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 the sheath that remains in sleep is called the anandamaya kosha. That explanation is given for the sake of those who want to who want to know how if we since the mind ceases to exist in sleep how does it come into existence again in waking? So a simple explanation that is given to satisfy most people is that the the vasanas remain in sleep, and the vasanas are what cause the mind to arise again. This is this is an answer that will satisfy those who don't think deeply and critically. But if we think more deeply, particularly in the light of what Bhagavan has taught us, the vasanas are inclinations. Whose inclinations are they? That you can't have inclinations without someone who is inclined. So what is the one who is inclined? Who, whose inclinations are they? They are only ego's inclinations. Since ego doesn't exist in sleep, um, its vasanas also don't exist in sleep. Its inclinations don't exist in sleep. But people are not then satisfied. Then they say, how then does, it, uh, does ego come into existence again after sleep? That is an impossible question to answer, just like the, the question, how did ego come into existence in the first place, is an impossible question to answer. The reason being, if ego had actually come into existence, we could find a cause for it, but ego has never actually come into existence. We seem to be ego only when we don't look at ourselves. When we look elsewhere, when we're attending to other things, we seem to be ego. If we look back at ourselves to see who am I, 
we'll see there's no such thing as ego at all. Since ego doesn't actually exist, there's, there, there's no way we can explain how it came into existence because it never actually came into existence. It only seemed to come into existence. That is why Bhagavan said, asking how or why ego came into existence is the wrong question to ask. What we need to, uh, what we need to ask, or rather what we need to investigate, is who or what is this ego? If we investigate what it is, we will find it doesn't actually exist. And then the questions how or why become redundant. Uh, asking how or why ego came into existence is like asking how or why the son of a barren woman was born. We cannot explain it because there's no such thing as a barren woman. If a woman is barren, she has no son. If she has a son, she's not barren. So the son of a barren woman is a logical impossibility. As unreal as the son of a barren woman, so unreal is ego. But, but ego seems to exist only because we don't look at ourselves. If we look at ourselves keenly enough, if we attend to ourselves keenly enough to see who am I, we will find that we are just pure awareness, and pure awareness is immutable. It never becomes ego. Um, so we cannot explain how ego came into existence in the first place. So there's no need to explain how ego came into existence in, uh, from sleep. To tell the truth, sleep is our eternal state. We are always in sleep. Sleep is what is otherwise called churia, the fourth state. It's our natural state of pure awareness. There's no difference between sleep and pure awareness. The only seeming difference between sleep and pure awareness, or any state of manolaya and pure awareness, is that from the perspective of ego or mind in the waking or dream states, we seem to have come out of it. So sleep and other states of manolaya, like nirikalpa samadhi, or swoon, or coma, or whatever, they seem to be temporary because we seem to have come out of it. But have we ever actually come out of sleep? No, we are ever that pure awareness. So actually, there's no coming out of it. But the, the Bhagavan points out in verse 13 of Upadeshundia, the distinction between uh, Manolaya and Manonasa. He says, what has, uh, what has gone in Manolaya will, will come back into existence. What has... Uh, died will not uh, rise again. So, uh, but this difference is a difference only from the perspective of ego in waking and dream. Now we seem to be ego, but we are able to recognize there was no ego in sleep. So this ego somehow has come out, it seems to us. Um, so that this that distinction is relevant so long as we rise as ego. When we investigate ourselves, we will see that we have never come out. There never was any state of Manolaya. And truly speaking, there was no state of Manonasa because Manonasa means destruction of mind. In order for mind to be destroyed, it has to exist. Manonasa is, is, a, is a way of describing the recognition that there never was any mind at all. As Bhagavan says, for example, in verse 17 of Upadesha India, um, that is, if we investigate the form of the mind without forgetting, 
or in other words, we, if we vigilantly hold on to self-attentiveness, it will be clear that there's no such thing as mind at all. So um, the mind seems to exist, as Bowen often used to say, people asked uh, how or why, Bowen said, if you want to have an answer, the only answer is abhichara or pramada. Avichara means non-investigation. Pramada means negligence. Both imply because of our not attending to ourselves. That is not actually the cause, because who is not attending to themselves? It's only ego. So the, the avichara or pramada can't cause the ego to come into existence. But why ego seems to exist is because of avichara or pramada. Because if we attend to ourselves keenly enough, we'll see there never was an ego at all. Um, so, uh, sorry, I explained quite a lot there, but to summarize, I, I was talking about the five sheaths. The five sheaths are the physical body or the, uh, the, um, the anamaya kosher, the sheath composed of food, is one. Two is uh, life or pranamaya kosher, the sheath composed of prana or of breath. Three is uh, mind, manas, or the manomaya kosha, the sheath composed of, uh, of, of mind. That means the grosser functions of the mind. Um, four is vijnanamaya uh, um, kosha, the sheath composed of dis distinguishing knowledge, of discriminating knowledge. That is the intellect or buddhi. And five is anandamaya kosha. But she's composed of happiness, otherwise called the will, which consists of vasanas. So all these five are, are collectively called the five sheaves. And as Bhagavan says in verse 22 of Upadesha uh, Undia, uh, referring to these five, he says, um, since the mind, since the body, mind, intellect, life, and darkness are all jada and asat, they are not I, which is sat. Here, what is um, the, the terms he uses here are referring to the five sheaths. Udal means body, is referring to the, uh, the anamaya kosha, the, the, sheath, the physical body, in other words. Um, Pori, in this context, pori means senses, but in this context, it's referring to the mind, which is what functions through the senses. So it's referring to the manamaya kosha. Ullam means heart or mind. In this context, it means intellect. It's referring to the buddhi. Um, Weir means uh, soul or life. In this context, it means life, and it's referring to the pranamaya kosha. And irul means darkness. Um, it's referring to that which is referring to the um, to the uh, anandamaya kosha, which is called darkness. People some people often equate it with the darkness of ignorance. The darkness of ignorance is ego. The darkness that is that is the the, the reason the will is referred to as darkness. It's the darkness of desires of vasanas because the stronger our vasanas, or particularly the stronger the vishaya vasanas, the more like the stronger will be our likes, dislikes, desires, attachments, and so on. These cloud the mind and obscure the inner clarity. That is why they are referred to as darkness. Um, 
So what Bhagavan is referring to here is the five sheaves, and all these five sheaves are jada and asat. Jada means they're not aware. Asat means they don't exist. Therefore, they are not I, which is satchit. He said he, what he says here is which is sat, but it implies chit also. Uh, it's it's it, I is both be, pure being and pure awareness. Um, so here he clearly says all these five sheaths are jada. Uh, why are they jada? Because they're all objects known by us. Who is it who knows all these objects? It is only ego. So ego is the subject. All these five sheaths are objects. But though these five sheaths are objects, whenever we rise as ego, we take these five sheaths collectively as ourself. And these five sheaths make up the person that we seem to be. So we are now each aware of ourselves as a person. I am Michael, I am Carlos, I am Ernesto, I am whoever. Um, we, 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 that is the name that is given is a name given to this body. And in this body, there's life, mind, intellect, and will are all function. So when we refer to ourselves as I am such and such a person, we're referring to all these five sheaths. Ego is not any of these five sheaths. As I said uh, um, in, in my earlier explanation, the, the mind, intellect, will, and ego are re collectively referred to as the um, as the antakarana, the inner instrument. Um, Bhagavan said these are not four different parts, they're four different functions. And he, the analogy he often gave was um, of a man. He may be a son to his parents. He's a brother to his, um, his uh, siblings. He's a husband to his wife. He's a father to his children. In the office, he's a clerk. In, the, um, in his social life, he may be, um, he may be a click cricket player. So he has so many different functions, but these are all functions of the same person. Likewise, the, the antakaran is one, but it has different functions. So the functions of the, the manas, it means the that the grosser aspects of the mind. That means the perception, memory, thoughts, feelings, e emotions, and so on. These all are grosser functions. Any functions of the mind other than intellect and will and ego are collectively called manas um, of a manamaya kosha. The intellect, its function is distinguishing, judging, recognizing, um, uh, reasoning, uh, logic, and so on. These are all functions of the intellect. The intellect is subtler than the, than the mind. In, in, mind used in this sentence. It, it, it refers to subtler functions of the mind. Still subtler than the intellect is the will, which consists of babasanas. These, as I say, these are, the, these are three of the five sheets. Ego is not any of these, uh, is not any of the five sheaths. Ego, the function of ego is ego, um, in, the, in the textbooks of Vedanta, it is said the function of ego is abhimanam. Abhimanam means 
attachment and identification. There's no one word in English for, to, um, to capture the meaning of the word abhimanam. Um, one of the meanings of abhimanam is pride, but it means pride in the sense of uh, I am this. So it's that I, attachment to anything as I or mine is abhimanam. So abhimanam is the function of intellect. Intellect is not any of the five sheaths, but that which identifies all the five sheaths as itself. Um, <clears throat> so the, the five sheaths are all objects, and therefore they're jada, whereas the, the ego that, uh, is aware of itself, I am this body consisting of these five sheaths, is, is a mixture of chit and jada, that's why it's called chit jada granti. The chit element of ego is I am. The, the jada element of ego is the five sheaves, the body consisting of five sheaves. And the, the, kosh, the, the, the granti, the knot, is that conflated awareness, that false awareness, I am this body. I am is pure awareness, such it. Um, this body is jada. We are two things which are completely unlike in nature. We are conflating and um, and taking to be one. This is what Bhagavan explains very uh, clearly in verse twenty four of Uludhunapdu. In verse twenty four, he says, "Jada udal nane nadu." The insentient body or the non-aware body does not say I. Uh, here, as I say, the, when, what he's referring to as body is, uh, as he says in this fifth verse, Udal Pancha Uru, it's a form composed of five sheaths. So when he talks about the Jada Udal, the insentient body, he's referring to all the five sheaths. So the Jada Udal does not say I. That is a metaphorical way of saying it is not aware of itself as I. Um, why is it not aware of itself as I? Because it's judder, it's not aware of anything. Um, and then in the next sentence, he says, Satchit Udiyadu. Satchit means, uh, Sat means being or what actually exists. Um, uh, uh, chit means awareness in the sense of pure awareness. So Satchit is pure being and pure awareness, um, which are one and the same thing. They're not two things, it's one and the same thing. Um, that that is what we actually are is awareness, and so awareness is our very being. So awareness and being are one and the same thing. Um, there's no existence, not even any seeming existence, independent of awareness. So awareness is the basic uh, being, the basic existence or reality, what actually exists. As Bhagavan says, for example, in verse twenty-three of Upadesha India, in which he says. Um, because of the non-existence of any awareness other than what exists, to know what exists, what exists is awareness. Why is there, why, why does he say because of the non-existence of any awareness other than what exists, to know what exists? If awareness was something other than what exists, it would be a non-existent awareness. Um, since it's aware of what exists, it must 
itself exists. So existence and awareness are not two different things. Therefore, awareness itself is, is what actually exists. And that awareness is I, it is we, is we, he says. It, um, so um, he says, awareness exists as we. So we are self uh, that awareness, which is what actually exists. So that is what he's referring to as Satchit, our true, our true awareness, the, our awareness of our mere existence, I am, that is Satchit. And he says, Satchit Udiyadu, Satchit does not rise. Uh, so the, the, we've got two, two things. We've got the body, which is not aware of itself as I, and we've got Satchit, but doesn't rise. But in between, one thing called I rises as the extent of a body. Since it rises, it's not Satchit. And since it's aware of itself as I, it's not the body. So it's neither, it's neither the body, nor is it Satchit. So it is called, as he says in the next sentence, Idu Chit Jadagranti. This is the not, uh, the, 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 the uh, awareness, non-awareness not. In other words, the not formed by the entanglement or semi-entanglement, because uh, Chit in its pure condition never becomes entangled with anything. But in, from a perspective of ego, we seem to have conflated and entangled ourselves with a body. So we're aware of ourselves as I am this body. So this false awareness, I am this body, is ego, and that is what is called chit-chadagranti. So it is neither the body, nor is it satchit, but something that rises in between. In between means it takes certain properties of the body. For example, it's limited to the extent of the body, as he says. But it, it is also aware of itself as I, so that it's, it's borrowed its awareness and its existence from Satchit, and it borrows its form from the body. So it has neither form of its, it, it has no form of its own, and it's got no substance of its own. It borrows its form from a body, it borrows its substance from Satchit. That is why in the next verse, verse 25, Bhagavan refers to it as uh, um, Uruvatra Payahande, the formless phantom ego or formless demon ego. The, the word pay means not only phantom but also demon. It's a, an evil spirit, um, but it is formless. It has no form of its own and it's got no substance of its own. It's borrowing its substance, its existence, and its awareness. It borrows from Satchit. Um, <clears throat> So the, the reason I say all, all this is just to recognize what Bhagavan is talking about here. He, why he's saying the body is a form of five sheaves is because later he distinguishes ego from the body. The body is, is jada, but ego is, is, uh, has an element of chaitanya, of awareness in it. Um, so I've spent all this time explaining basically the first sentence of this verse, Udal Pancha Koza Uru, because, um, I mean, it's basically it's a very simple idea. The five she's means uh, the physical body, life, mind, intellect, and will. Um, but because they're technical terms for these and because Bhagavan has said a lot more about these, I elaborated upon that. So then in the second sentence of this fifth verse, he draws a conclusion. Adanal, uh, Adanal means therefore, udal enum solil, in the word 
uh, in the term uh, body, Aindum uh, Adongam, all five are included. So whenever Bhagavan talks about body in the context of ego, ego is the awareness, is the false awareness, I am this body. What he means by body is all these five sheaths, because we never experience ourselves as one without experiencing ourselves as all five. Whenever we are aware of ourselves as this physical body, we're also aware of this physical body is alive, there's breathing, there's heartbeat and everything. So the, the, the body is alive. And within it, mind, intellect and will are functioning, all as if they are one entity. We, we, though we identify all five as, as, as I, we, we don't have five different eyes, one body eye, one life eye, one mind eye, one intellect eye, one will eye. No, it's all, we, we, this, this is a bundle of five sheets. We, that's why Bhagavan referred to them collectively with a singular noun, udl. Um, but this, this, these five together make up the body that we experience as ourselves. That's why he says all five are included in the term body. Um, because nobody has ever experienced um, one of these five sheaths without experiencing uh, all, of, uh, the, all the other ones also. Um, and then in the next, um, then the, the next two sentences are rhetorical questions. They're connecting this verse back again with the previous verse. In the previous verse, as I say, he says, if oneself is a form, the world will, and God will be likewise. If oneself is not a form, who can see their forms and how? So when, in our experience, the world is a multitude of names and forms. So we are aware of this world as names and forms only when we're aware of ourselves as a form. So this world of names and forms, we never experience except when we experience ourselves as a body. That's what he goes on to say in the next two sentences. Udalandri undo ulaham. Without uh, the body, uh, is their world. The body here, of course, means the five sheaths. Without a body composed of these five sheaths, is their world. Um, and then in the next sentence, he says, Udal Victu Ulahate Kanda Ularo. Udal Victu literally means leaving the body. But often the, the word Victu, which means leaving or letting go of, um, it's often used in the sense of without. So in this context, it, it implies without. Without the body, uh, is there anyone who has seen the world? Um, and then the, final, the word verse ends with the final word, uh, which means say. So why these two questions, if we, if we um, read them carefully, they, they, mean, they seem to be saying very much the same thing. The first is, without a body, is there a world? The second is, without a body, is there anyone who has seen a world? The difference is, in the first sentence, he's talking about the existence of the world. In the second sentence, he's talking about the perception of the world. 
why does he say there is, that no world exists without a body? Because no world is seen without a body. And according to Bhagavan, nothing, nothing that is judged, uh, no, no objects exist independent of our perception of them. That is, they exist only in our view, only in the view of ego, only in our mind, we can say. Just like in dream, in dream we see a whole world um, and so many people in the world and so many events happening. Uh, history is unfolding in the dream world, just like it's unfolding in this world. And um, in dream we can study science, we can study history, we can study geography. There's, so everything in dream seems to be so real so long as we're dreaming and we have memories of uh, earlier, uh, what happened earlier in our life. So it all seems to be part of that. So the dream seems perfectly real so long as we're dreaming. But as soon as we wake up, we recognize, oh, it was just a dream. It was all only in our own mind. It had the dream world doesn't exist independent of our perception of it. After waking up from a dream, we don't think, oh, I wonder what's happened to the uh, friends I made in the dream or to the, this person I met in the dream. Are they doing okay now I've left them? No, we don't. We know as soon as we wake up, our identification with the dream body is severed. So the dream world, that seems so real, so long as that dream body seemed to be ourself, no longer seems to be real. So we recognize, oh, it was all a mental fabrication. So the dream world has no in existence independent of our perception of it. According to Bhagavan, this present world has no in existence independent of our perception of it. That is why he says these two sentences. In the, they're both uh, rhetorical questions, but the implication of the rhetorical question is clear. The first one, without a body, is there a world? The clear, um, what that rhetorical question implies is, without a body, there is no world. Why does he say there's no world without a body? Because no one has ever seen a world without a body. So we have, since we no world, we have no reason to suppose a world exists when we do not see it, because obviously when we are not seeing the world, we've got no evidence that any world exists. But the only reason we suppose that a world exists is because we see it. Here, see doesn't, doesn't isn't to be taken literally as, as uh, the faculty of sight, all the five senses. Through the five senses, we see the world. So that they, that is meta perception is what is metaphorically referred to in this context as seeing. So seeing here implies perception. So without the five kinds of sensory perception, um, there's no such thing as a world. The world consists of, this is what he says in the next verse, verse six, uh, the world um, in the next verse, he says, um, uh, the world is a form of five sense impressions, not anything else. In other words, it's composed of five different kinds of sense impressions, sights, sounds, tastes, smells, and tactile sensations. If you take away these five, where is there any such thing as the world? There's no such thing. Um, so the world... Um, the the, the world is nothing but sense impressions. And sense impressions, who is aware of those sense impressions? It's only the mind. So the sense impressions actually are mental impressions. So there's no world independent of the mind. And the mind 
we, we seem to be this mind only when we identify ourselves as a body. So without a body, there's, uh, there's no world, that no world exists, because without a body, no one has ever seen a world. It's only when we identify ourselves as a body, but we see a world of names and forms. As he says in the previous verse, if oneself is a form, the world and God will be likewise. If oneself is not a for form, who can see their forms and how? So that's the meaning of these two rhetorical questions. And then the, the final word, just for poetic reasons, he says he ends the verse, Kararu. That means that, that's just to complete the meter. So he's saying, say, is there, has anyone ever seen a world uh, without a body? No. I think we can all confidently say that is the case. Some people may say, oh, in after-death experience, um, people report uh, rising out of their body and seeing the world, seeing the, the doctors maybe trying to resuscitate their body, for example, and they're seeing it. And therefore, we're see that, that's, isn't that a case of seeing the world without a body? No. We, uh, the... The very fact that it's, it's such experiences are, uh, well, I mean, the people do experience these things, whatever be the explanation for it. The simple explanation, according to Bhagavan, it's all just an extension of the same dream. But when we, if, if we're in that situation, our body is lying lifeless on the bed, and the doctors and nurses are trying to resuscitate it, and we are witnessing it, Often people say they, they, they seem to be up above, near the ceiling, looking down and, and seeing it. Or sometimes they're aware of, in a, they, they, they seem to be in some other room where the doctors are telling their relatives, but um, he's passed away, now we're trying to resuscitate him, um, but uh, be prepared for the worst. Uh, we may be there hearing that conversation. The very fact that we are aware of ourselves in a location means that we've got a subtle type of physical body. Because if we, if we didn't have a, a subtle physical body, we couldn't be aware, we wouldn't be perceiving from a particular location. We wouldn't be either in some other room hearing what the doctor is saying to our relatives or up near the ceiling looking down on our body. Um, we, we, wouldn't be, we wouldn't be aware of these things without having a, a location within the physical world. We cannot have a location within the physical world without a physical form. It may not be a physical form that others can see, so it may be a subtle physical form, but it is physical in the sense of, in the sense that it's, we are viewing from a particular location within that world. So though we are looking down on our physical body, we seem to be, uh, they call it out-of-body experience, but what is out of the body? There's some sort of subtle physical body because we have a physical location. Um, so the truth is, without a body, nobody has ever seen a world. Therefore, no world exists in, without a body. It's, uh, the, the world is nothing but a perception, and the, we perceive the world through a body, through the five senses of the body. Even when we're, um, when we're having an out-of-body experience, and we're looking down and watching the doctors uh, resuscitate our, our, our gross physical body, we're in there in some subtle physical body, and, but that subtle physical body also has subtle senses, because we see what is happening, we hear what the doctors are saying, 
Um, we may even smell the, the, the you know, in, doc, in hospitals, there's the smell of um, disinfectant and smell of medicines and things. We may even smell things. Um, so but all the five senses are functioning, but not in this gross physical body, in a more subtle type of physical body. But still there's a body there. And so we have an identity. Uh, I, uh, I am such and such a person. I am Michael. Um, my body has just died, but I'm here watching what the doctors are doing. We still have the same identity. Uh, so all the five sheaves are there. Even though we are seemingly separated from one of the five sheaves, we have that same we have that same uh, anamaya kosha, but in a more subtle form, we can say. So, um, I think I've just about finished my explanation of that. Do you have any questions you want to ask on this verse? It's funny that, that you mentioned the the uh, out of body experiences because. Yeah. They are just, I don't know if this is also consistent with the Bhagavan's teachings. I just, uh, a couple of days ago, I saw uh, like an interview on TV about a supposedly expert on lucid dreaming and things like that. Mm. He said that uh, in order to have lucid dreams, you have to uh, do reality checks, for, for, for example, for 15 to days to one month. And you have to pull your index like five times a day, for example, or 10 times a day or so. And then eventually, uh, maybe in a month or so, you will wake up in the dream. Uh, you will see that you pull your index, but your index like expands really uh, a lot, and you you realize that it is a dream. But then uh, they say that. But the, the, the hardest thing is that when you realize that you are dreaming, everything starts to vanish, and like the whole dreams, the whole dream starts to vanish. And then what you have to do in that case is to, again, look at your body, to your hands, to, uh, to a physical thing, like a, the, your body, you know, like uh, as if uh, identifying with the body again to, for, you know, the, for the dream to, uh, to reassert itself again, <laughs> so to speak. No? So, uh, yes, all these things about lucid dreaming and everything, they, it's all a dream that is... This term lucid dreaming, it, it, has, it is given different definitions in different contexts or by different people. Some people say a lucid dream is a dream where you recognize you're dreaming. If you recognize you're dreaming, that's just a thought that occurs within the dream. I am now dreaming. But the, the majority of people who are lucid dreaming, they still believe this waking state is real, and that dream is, a, is, is different. So they, 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 lucidity means clarity. They lack the clarity to see, but this waking state is as much a dream as any other one. So they are just dreaming, but they are lucidly dreaming. It is just a dream within a dream, so to speak. Mm -hmm. yeah. So... Um, people sometimes ask me um, how to explain lucid dreaming in the, in the terms of Bhagavan's uh, teachings. I say simply, it's all a dream. Even the lucid dreaming is a, you're dreaming, but you're dreaming lucidly. And you're experiencing at least pleasant things or, I mean, yes, yes, yes. Body, and, and other people say, when you're lucidly dreaming, you think you're, you're, a, you're in control. You can control what's happening. 
that itself is another uh, a dream. In fact, whatever is happening in a dream, whether this waking, this dream that we now mistake to be waking or any other dream, which we mistake to be waking so long as we are experiencing it, whatever is happening in them is happening according to prarabdha. So if we think we're in control of what is happening, that is itself another illusion. It's another dream. We're, we are dreaming, but we are in control, but we're not actually in control. Yeah. According to this man, actually, this, he said that you, don't have, you have no control. Then you yeah. have a look at your hands and then there is a different scenario. Yes. You but have... other, others will say, no, no, in a lucid dream, it's not a real lucid dream if you don't have control over what's happening. <laughs> so everyone has their own ideas about these things. But simple truth is, Bhagavan says it's all any state in which you're aware of anything other than yourself is a dream. And in all dreams, we're aware of ourselves as a body. So it's all ignorance. So it is just this doing research on, on lucid dreams or um, doing exercises to lucid dream. It's all within the realm of ignorance. Just like there are people who think that there is also, it's also possible to control this dream somehow. I don't know. Yes, 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 yes. It's all ignorance. What is true, what is real, is only I am. So being interested in anything other than I am is due to ignorance. So our, our, our interest in the life of this person whom we now seem to be is itself ignorance. I, I, in sleep, I'm very happy without Michael. But in waking and dream, I take myself to be Michael, and so I'm so concerned about Michael's welfare and about Michael's life and everything. It, that is all just, uh, it's all unreal. Because if, I'm, if I were really Michael, I couldn't be aware of myself in sleep without being aware of myself as Michael. Since I'm aware of myself in sleep without being aware of Michael, Michael cannot be what I actually am. So the, the, trying to know anything other than I am is ignorance. It's ignorance upon ignorance. We're already ignorant, and we just add to that ignorance. That's why Bhagavan said, sleep is a state of pure knowledge. Waking and dream are states of pure ignorance. We take that sleep is a state of ignorance, and waking and dream are knowledge. Bhagavan says, knowledge of multiplicity is ignorance. Knowledge of ourself alone is real knowledge, real awareness. And uh, when Bhagavan says that the, the body doesn't say I, yes, actually doesn't rise, uh, using the analogy of the rope and the snake, is as in a sense, it's like saying the snake doesn't say I, or the snake is the identification with the body. The, the, the rope is the satchi. Yes, so yes. yes. Snake is like the ego is in between, something in between that rises between the rope and the snake. Uh, it borrows the <laughs> way of not I want to take yeah. it too far. Yeah, we, we, yeah, we, but, we shouldn't try and extend uh, yeah. analogies too far. That is, when we see the, the rope and mistake it to be a snake, that, that, that false awareness 
this thing lying on the ground is a snake. That is like ego. I am this body. What, what is actually lying on the ground is not a, a snake, it's only a rope. So, but but the, the, the snake and the rope are both jada. They're both objects perceived by us. So yeah, all, all analogies have their limitation. So we... we Taking that into account, of course. We, we, yeah, we take what is useful from the analogy. We don't... Yeah, right. If we try and stretch the analogy too far, we get ourselves... Uh, we get ourselves in a confusion, in a twist. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, but it describes the confusion that ego is. Ego, uh, ego is the, is itself a confusion and it's the root of all other confusions. Because what could be a greater confusion than mistaking ourselves, who are chit, who are pure awareness, for a body which is jada? That is what great confusion that can there be when this chit granti called ego. So no wonder we are all in confusion. Also about where happiness lies and where happiness lies, where truth lies, what is, what is real, what is false. We're confused about everything. We take what is unreal to be real and what is real to be unreal. Because in a worldly sense, like when psychology speak, uh, the normal paradigm is that the, the mind says I. Yes. Something in the mind. Right? Yes. I don't know yes. what. Uh, yeah, but it's, yeah, yeah. Obviously, it's just the the mano mayakoshe say saying I. Right? Well, according to to yeah. many, and it's perceived and it's it's just yeah. According to many philosophers, everything is. I mean the the. the Dominant paradigm or, or the dominant metaphysics in uh, in modern philosophy and science is the is the metaphysics of materialism of physicalism. But everything is physical. There has to be a physical explanation for everything. This is why they talk about the hard problem of consciousness because how to explain consciousness in physical terms? That's the problem they're up against. But still, they they insist on assuming. But consciousness is, well, what is conscious is this brain that is conscious. That itself is a confusion. But that is they're failing to distinguish, they're failing to distinguish the seer from the seen. Distinguishing the seer from the seen, the perceiver from the perceived, the knower from the known, the subject from the object is what is called Drik Drisya Viveka. That is completely absent in modern neuroscience and um, the, the modern science of consciousness and philosophy of consciousness. They fail to make that simple distinction between subject and object. If you point out this distinction, they say, oh, no, that's dualism. We're not dualists. Because they take that is, uh, they think the same as a subject and object is dualism. But obviously, there is a difference between I who know and what is known. That dual that that is dualism, but it's not that dualism is not real because the objects have no existence independent of a subject. But that's something they wouldn't want to admit because they take they want to take the objective world, the world of objects, to be real. And in fact, they, they call 
if you accept the world of objects as real, that is called realism. If, you're, if you say it's not real, then you're anti-realist. <laughs> they are actually the anti-realist because they're denying what is actually real, which is consciousness alone, and giving, attributing reality to the objects that are known. And even some philosopher that I, I, I don't know who, but that uh, even went as far as uh, denying consciousness. Yes, 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 yes. Some, like, uh, Daniel Dennett says it's an illusion. Mm -hmm. There cannot be an illusion without consciousness because illusion means a, a misperception. If you see one thing as something other than what it actually is, that's called an illusion. But so without consciousness, there can be no illusion. So to say consciousness is an illusion, that's why I say they get themselves by their, by their, you, they're very, very smart people in all their arguments and everything, but they are, they are failing to recognize the distinction between the seer and the seen. So they, they, because their intellects are going so busy rushing outwards, they're not able to, make that simple distinction to recognize there is a fundamental distinction between the seer and the seen, the knower and the known, the subject of all objects. And another problem with modern philosophy is they are so beholden to science. They think science is, science is so successful that it has to be true. So they have to try to, uh, to uh, um, adapt their philosophy to the, um, to the science. But if philosophy is doing its function, it should be questioning the very the, the, the metaphysical assumptions on which all of science is based. They're failing to do that. So the vast majority of modern philosophers, the academic philosophers, they are not very deep philosophers. They're floating on the surface. Their metaphysics is very, very superficial and uncritical. Yeah, because I've heard some other uh, neuroscientists and people like this, that they say that there's been, the brain has been mapped out completely yeah. and there is no place for uh for something called i in the brain yes yes center uh, uh, there's no i <laughs> nothing that orchestrates who, who, who has who is it who has found out that there's no i i have found out <laughs> so they they because this is the problem with looking outwards so long as we look outwards we will be in confusion if we want true clarity we need to look within. This is the great secret Bhagavan has brought. This is a secret that even has been lost to most Advaitins. Most Advaitins, they believe, but knowledge of Brahman can come only from the Sastras. So they think the knowledge can come only from something outside. But why, how can knowledge of Brahman come from outside? You yourself are Brahman. You can find knowledge of Brahman only within yourself. So Bhagavan has, has, has pointed out in very clear and simple ways, the blindingly obvious, but uh, 
sadly overlooked uh, practical implication of all of the Vedanta Sastras, all of the essential, the essence of Vedanta, what is the practical implication of it, Bhagavan has pointed out. And the truth is, we cannot know Brahman, however much you read all the Upanishads, the Brahma Sutra, the Bhagavad Gita, the commentaries on them, you don't come an, a st- uh, any closer to knowing Brahman. You may know all about Brahman, but you don't know Brahman. Because knowing about Brahman is not knowing Brahman. You can know Brahman only by being Brahman. And you can be Brahman only by turning within and seeing who am I. So what, what Bhagavan has brought us, though it's very, very simple, and once, we've, once we understand it, it seems so obvious, but actually it is so, so precious. It is, and it is, it is, it is such a well-guarded secret. Bhagavan once, when, when someone asked Bhagavan, Bhagavan, is, is what's written in these books in Who Am I? Is this all we have to know? Or is there some more secret teachings that you, 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 you keep? Bhagavan said, here it's all an open secret. But that we can read a deeper meaning into that also. Yes, here Bhagavan has made it all open. But in spite of his making it open, it still remains secret to those who don't look within. Because unless we look within, we cannot truly understand what Bhagavan is saying. What he's saying is very simple and very clear, but we will understand it correctly only to the extent to which we look within. So, so long as we continue to look outwards, it remains a secret. Even if we think we've understood it, we haven't understood it until we turn within. And as he says in verse uh, 21, I think, of, uh, of Uludunapdu, Unadal Khan, being food is seeing. So we can see the truth of Bhagavan's teachings only when we have been swallowed by him. Not before then. Yeah, in many verses in Puladunarpadu, uh, he ends. Uh, he ends by uh, redirecting your attention away. Uh, sorry, uh, to back, yourself, to, back to ours. Uh, if we understand uh, his teachings correctly, all his teachings are directing our attention back to ourselves. Every verse of Puladunarpadu, every verse of Upadeshundia, every sentence of Nana. Every verse in Arunacha Stuti Panchakam, they're all pointing our attention back towards ourselves. Though in Arunacha Stuti Panchakam, though at one level he's, he's addressing the hill, clearly he, he makes clear reference to the hill, but he's, he's constantly stressing the hill that is shiny in the heart as I. So he's, all of Arunacha Stuti Panchakam is also pointing our attention back within. If we have, uh, if we go into the meaning deeply enough, we will see what he's teaching us in Stutipanchikam is the same that he's teaching in Uladunapadu and Upadeshundia. All the one thing he came to teach is turn within, Tirumbiyaham, turning within, Dinam Tanay Dinam Ahakankan. Daily see yourself with the inner eye, Terium. It will be known. 
So if we want to know the truth of his teachings, if we want to know the truth of the silent teachings of Arunachala, the only way is to turn within and see ourselves. Dinam, he says daily, that means repeatedly, persistently, constantly. Yeah, there's something that it doesn't happen with a, a few turns. No, no. And that's the thing because yes. uh, the repetition and the constant practice is what uh, maybe... Yeah. Because of the strength of our Bishaya Basanas, we have to we have to try again and again and again until they eventually get weakened sufficiently for us to be willing to let go of everything else and merge back into our source. You, you wrote it's uh, the uh, is uh, made up of perceptions, memory, thinking. Yeah, feelings, yeah. emotions, and so on. So, Basically, all the gross, anything that doesn't, I mean, ego, we know the function of ego. Ego is to, is to attach itself to things. So ego is not any of the five sheep. We know the function of the will, all the vasanas, exactly. and the resulting likes, dislikes, desires, attachments. The vasanas are all those likes, dislikes, desires, and so on in their seed form. See, example, so that is the will. Absolutely. The intellect... We, we know what the function of the intellect is, judging, uh, discriminating, reasoning, uh, and so on. That's the function of the intellect. All other functions of the mind are what are called manamaya kosha. So mm -hmm. all the grosser functions of the mind. Mm -hmm. So when you say uh, our will is, uh, um, is made up of, for example, fears, hopes, uh, yeah. likes, dislikes, yeah. attachments, and so on. You're not talking there about it in the same way as feelings and emotions. It's just a seed form, maybe yes, later yes, in the, yes, yes. Uh, that, as you that, are by the vasana, it yes. may manifest in feelings in the yes, yes, uh, yes. Emotions, so that is when we when we intensely desire something that can create emotions. When we intensely fear something, it creates emotions. Those emotions. That is why Bhagavan said the antakarana is actually one. It has different functions. So when any, any of the, the, the vasanas manifest strongly, it, it can result in emotions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. And we, uh, but we would... need to distinguish the, 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 the love from the emotion, but it... But it, it uh, but it causes, or the fear and the emotion that it causes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. And then maybe if we have enough discernment, maybe we are, instead of being swayed by a strong emotion, maybe we are able to, I don't know, some other thing, or yeah. not, not to be so uh, attached to that emotion yeah. once it uh, manifests in the mind. Yes. Yeah? We, we can see, for example, with, with fear, you asked about fear. <laughs> Supposing you're, you're suddenly in a situation where you're in mortal danger, you're, you're crossing a road and suddenly you see a car coming fast towards you and you're about to be hit by the car, you'll feel a strong uh, fear and that fear will cause a strong emotion. Even when you get out of danger and you're, you know you're safe, that emotion, that the fear has gone but the emotion remains for some time. It takes us time for people to recover from the shock sometimes yeah. or from any strong emotion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
right? So it's very sudden, like the, the very... Well, sometimes it can be sudden, sometimes yeah. it can be, I mean, sometimes... Um, like when you are crossing the road and... Yeah. For, for example, if you think of the people now in Mariupol mm -hmm. who are hiding underground, daily they're being bombarded. There must be a background fear in their mind all the time. Is the next bomb going to hit me? Or is this roof going to collapse on me? Am I going to be crushed under everything? They must be in, in fear, um, pretty much a constant fear throughout the waking state. Um, but when the actual bomb hits, then there'll be an intense, that, that fear will intensify at that moment. Yeah. And then when they, they've heard it, okay, that one didn't get me. Because um, uh, it, I heard from people who were in London during the Second World War, or anyone who's in a war situation, they say, if you hear the explosion, you know you're safe. Mm -hmm. But it's somewhere else. So well, once, once you've heard the bang, oh, that, you, because sometimes you can hear the bomb whistling as it's approaching. Then when you hear it exploding, okay, it's hit somewhere else. It hasn't hit me, you know. So um, they, when you hear the bomb whistling, there must be that intensifying fear. And then when it explodes, oh, that one didn't get me. Yeah. Yeah, so, right. so definitely the, the, the vasanas are affecting the vasanas are affecting the way we are reasoning. It's affecting the intellect. We we a lot of our reasoning is to justify what we want to believe. Mm -hmm. If I want to believe um, I'm justified in committing a crime, for example, I will think of so many reasons. If I want to commit that crime, I'll try and justify it to myself. Yeah, or because like these people I'm, I'm robbing, they got the money by unrighteous means, so why shouldn't I get from them? And they got too much money anyway, they won't. It's, uh, I'm just trying to redistribute wealth. We, may, we will think of so many reasons like that for all our beliefs. Philosophers, for example, every philosopher has their own beliefs. No two philosophers agree on anything, or they, they don't entirely agree. They agree to some extent with some of them, but they strongly disagree with others. But they all have very good uh, reasons. They've convinced themselves that their own, um, their own beliefs are more reasonable than all everyone else's beliefs. So we, but the intellect is subservient to the will. The mind is very much subservient to the will. Our emotions are very much um, connected with our desires, our hopes, our fears, and so on. So these are, these are not neat. We, we can't, these are general classifications. They, we, we can't precisely, where, where is the boundary between the mind and the intellect? Where is the boundary between the intellect and the will? There's, there's so much interaction. We can't, we can't draw, draw a clear-cut boundary. But this is will, this is intellect. Because the two are working so closely hand in hand. And likewise, intellect and, um, and manas. And likewise, the will and the manas, they're also, there's so much interaction. And in our experience, it is I who have desire, I who have fear, I who am reasoning, I who am uh, discerning, I who am judging, I who am um, 
who am seeing or remembering or hearing or feeling. So it's all I. And it's I who am sitting here. It's I who am breathing. So we are all the whole bundle of five she's we take as I. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like in the analogy of the siblings and the father. So it would be like a big, big family with many connections. It's very hard to. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> It's all all so intimately interconnected. But the one unifying thing, what unifies all these five as one, is ego. Because it takes a, I am this, um, this person consisting of these five sheaves. So intellect is, is what ties them all together as if they are one. It's not like there are many eyes in our mind. And yes, yes, yeah. there's only one I, eye. Whether you say, I, I am sitting here talk, uh, thinking about this problem and trying to, and talking about my ideas, it's not one eye is sitting, another eye is thinking about the problem, another eye is talking. No, it's all, it's one eye who's doing all these things. And where... As Bhagavan says in all you up I think in verse 32 or 33 somewhere, he says, uh, uh, Andrei Aneva Anubuti, that being one is the experience of everyone. Aneva Anubuti Unmeal is the truth of everyone's experience. So we all, ex- though, though we, cl- we take all these five sheaths as ourselves, we experience ourselves as one. And where does ego get this sense of oneness from? Because it derives its existence and its awareness. It derives from the one that alone actually exists. The one that exists without a second. Ekameva dvaitiam. That is such it. That is what we actually are. A pure being and pure awareness, I am. That is what we actually are. So I am is always one. That gives ego the sense of oneness, and thereby, and ego, because it takes these five sheaths collectively as itself, it experiences them all. Though it can distinguish between the body and the mind and so on, it experiences them all collectively as the one single eye. But the truth is, none of them are I. What is I is only I. I am I. It's in a way it's connected with the first two of Nanar, right? The first, the first five of Lenorapadu, because, uh, well, in first five doesn't say uh, what. Uh... You, you, mean, you mean the, the paragraph where uh, the, uh, the yeah. body and the prana be okay. all not I. Yeah, yes, it, it's all uh, it, that there, the analysis is not quite so much on the five sheaves. It talks about the senses and everything, but these are just different ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, the point in that paragraph, most of which was actually written by Shiva Prakashan Palai based on what he had learned in philosophy, is all these the, the body, the mind, the intellect, the will, the, um, the Um, the senses, the sen- that, that is the five sense organs, the five motor organs, all of these are not I. In other words, all phenomena are not I. Mm-hmm. As Buddha said, Sabbe Dhamma Anatta, 
That means all dharmas, dharmas there means phenomena, all phenomena are anatta, are not oneself. So since phenomena are not ourself, what do we need to do? We need to inquire, who am I? We need to investigate, who am I? We, we need to recognize that we're not any phenomenon. But so long as we take ourselves to be this or that, we'll be investigating the wrong thing. We first need to know, understand I'm not this or that or anything else. I am just I. So we investigate I alone. So that neti-neti process, it is, a, it is a, an analytical process that is necessary as a, as a, as a, um, it's a prerequisite for effectively investigating ourselves. Because if we don't first distinguish ourselves from the mind, from the, from the body, the mind, the intellect, and so on, we will be investigating the wrong thing when we try to investigate ourselves. So first we need to understand we are not any phenomenon. We are that which is aware of all these phenomena. Then we can begin to investigate ourselves by turning our attention back to ourselves. To whom do all these things appear? To me, who am I? That's why Bhagavan, when somebody, someone, uh, you said before that the, the, in deep sleep, there is no explanation. Uh, deep sleep, why ego uh, uh, rises again after sleep? Yes. Yeah. Only uh, when someone would not be convinced of, I, I, know, I don't, there has to be some explanation. Vagabond say that. Like, uh, uh, yeah, there has to be, the explanation is this, okay? There yes. Is, you, uh, you are tired or uh, the Ananda Mayakosha remains in deep sleep. Yeah, and yeah. Yeah. Yes, I mean, different explanations are appropriate to give to different people. But the truth is, there's nothing to be explained. Because if we investigate, everything seems to exist only in the view of ego. Without ego, there's nothing. If we investigate ego, we find there's no such thing as ego. So in the end, all explanations are unreal. Yeah, what what is true is only I am, and I am needs no explanation. <laughs> you know, to give unnecessary detail explanations to a dream, yes. That, well, yes. it's real, obviously. Yes, I yes. Realize it's happening, but uh... but many many people are not willing to accept that this is a dream. Even many so-called Advaitins are unwilling to. They say this is maybe like a dream, but it's not actually a dream. This is different. This is more real. Dream is Pratibhasika Satya. This is Vivaharika Satya. This is more real because everyone else is also seeing this, unlike in a dream where there's only one person seeing it. So this is more real. Many Advaitins will argue like that. So for such people, explanations have to be given to suit their, their pakpa, their, their level of um, maturity. They're not yet willing to... to to acknowledge that there's no difference between waking and dream. So they have to be given explanations that will satisfy them. Because only if they're satisfied will they go further, uh, go a little bit deeper in the path. And only when they go deeper in the path will they come to recognize that actually there's no difference between waking and dream. 
That is why there are so many different religions. So, and religions teach so many different things. It's to suit people at different levels of spiritual development. So there's no such thing as a true religion or a false religion. All that is re religion in its different forms are there to suit different people. And like everything else human, it's, I mean, it's mis misused by people in so many different ways. But the, the, the basic aim of all religions is to gradually turn people's attention back within. But so long as people are enthusiastic to go outwards, um, it, they need to be led very, very gently to get them finally to come back within. Just like Bhagavan is leading all of us very gently. And he's been leading us gently since the since the moment we first rose as ego. His grace, his grace is um, has been working ever since we rose as ego. Slowly, 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 he's been bringing us to this path. So he is our eternal companion, our eternal guru, our eternal guide, our eternal support, our eternal refuge. Yeah. And it, uh, it is very important, the conjunction of, of all these uh, things like, uh, well, doing the neti neti first, having clear what, uh, what we are to attend and uh, Believing this world is uh, like a, like a dream, uh, the yeah. same as dream. Uh, practicing ahimsa and yeah. uh, I mean all this. Uh, the more we uh, understand Bhagavan's teachings clearly and deeply, the more we will understand how all these things fit together and how they all these are are necessary. But they're necessary only up to a certain point. Oh. The ultimate truth is I am, or I am I. I'm nothing other than I. And there is nothing other than I. 